Hey, welcome to Cornerstone Ministries Young Adult Podcast. We hope this serves as a resource for you as you seek, find, and grow in your walk with Jesus. And tune in for sermon audios from our Young Adult Services and other original content. And if you already have a home church, we're glad this can be another tool for you. But if not, we hope that you would check us out online at cornerstonelive.net or join us in person. And Cornerstone is in Murraysville, PA, and services are Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. And our young adult ministry gathers every other Tuesday at 7 p.m. And we hope you're motivated by what Pastor Brandon has to say today. All right, so tonight we're talking about sex. Um, sorry, that was a running joke the last couple of weeks that when we got into this message, apparently every time I say the word sex, I have to like drop it down three octaves. Uh, but guys, as we are, are jumping into this, you know, like, like I said, we have uh, tonight and then in two weeks, we have our last uh, message in this series, Don't Get It Twisted. But in this concept, there are so many elements to life in general, but specifically in relationships that we just royally mess up. But the reason we can get them so out of whack and, and, and so off balance is honestly by small little deviations, First uh, Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And you know what's interesting about this verse is it doesn't say that money in and of itself is evil, but the love of it. And you, if you look at any of the sins we struggle with, they're not these drastic manipulations, but they're these small little changes and subtleties. So money in and of itself isn't evil, but the love of it, you got greed. To have confidence in oneself is a great thing to understand that you are a saint in the eyes of the Lord, that you are now righteous in the eyes of God because of the Holy Spirit, but a little bit too much self-love, and you got what? You got pride. As you're trying to seek counsel in someone, as you're trying to have conversations, hey, how should I deal with this? That's fantastic. But a little bit too much transparency in some of those conversations can turn into what? Gossip. So honestly, if you look at any of these sins that we wrestle with and struggle with, you get these slight deviations and changes in things. And the same is true for sex. And honestly, even, even just talking about it, like sex is one of those things in certain settings you just don't expect to hear it. It's like hearing your grandma talking about sex, you're like, that's just not, there's, that's not a person that I want to hear say that word. Uh, and I feel like sometimes we get that same type of stigma uh, in church. And when it does come up, it only comes up in particular ways, and in, in particular fashions. And that's kind of where I want to go tonight and, and get into some of these things. But the question we ultimately have to be kind of diving into here as we're trying to seek, how do I get my understanding of sex and sexuality, how do I get that more aligned with God's wiring. And I saw this, this video early today, and it was about this guy who was just trying to, he was rethinking some things. And what he was trying to process was, is my desire, the desires I have for my children to be, does that line up with God's desire of what God wants my children to be? And, his, and the way he was describing it, it was, he said, it's very Shakespearean, like is my to be his to be, is my not to be his not to be. And he was kind of joking about it, but it did. It got me thinking in this regard to, is my understanding of sex lined up with God's understanding of sex? Is my desire for my sexual life, is that lined up with God's design, his plan for things? Is my to be, not to be lined up with God's to be, not to be? What should be, shouldn't be? That I'm just getting lost in my own analogy here. 
But guys, ultimately what it comes down to is we're trying to battle so many different opinions. Okay, the church doesn't have it necessarily figured out, but even the world doesn't have it figured out. And that even if you look at most psychological medical journals, we can throw up that first slide, even if we look at most psychological medical journals, the studies, they actually go back and forth. One study will come up and it'll have all the negative effects of porn, and then another study will come out and it'll have some positive effects of porn. And this is from the world's perspective. And they talk about, you know, some of the positive effects. They talk about sexual empowerment, healthy understanding of sexuality, all these other things. And then, of course, you get the negative studies, you know, that talk about the demeaning of, uh, the demeaning of sexuality, a numbness to it. But even the secular world cannot land the plane, so to speak. It cannot come to a conclusive thought of to what degree is expression of sexuality healthy and unhealthy. And we're ultimately just living in a world full of opinions, driven, a culture driven by sexual empowerment, right? This idea of, hey, let's be sexual beings, but not sexualized beings. So we need to have the freedom to express our sexuality, but we don't want to be sexualized in the process of expressing our own sexuality. And even in that sentence, it's like, man, the world cannot figure out what it wants to convey and what it actually believes about these things. And then when we step into church and we think, okay, hopefully the church can kind of nail this down and, and give some specific focus here. Now, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't have it all figured out. Okay, in, let's see. I'm going to get in trouble for getting this wrong. Three weeks. Yeah. Just under three weeks is my wife and I's uh, eight-year wedding anniversary, uh, 13 years together. And I promise you this, in eight years of marriage, I do not have a, a full understanding of God's design for sex. There are specific verses and specific truths that are hopefully going to help us get us on that right path. But we have to kind of peel back just years and years, generations and generations of a mishandling of this topic. I mean, let's be honest, even the, even the word sex can sometimes make us uncomfortable. We can kind of cringe and get uncomfortable by anatomical parts of the body that God has designed and say that is very good. And in certain conversations, we cringe at words like penis and vagina and boobs. Like It's like, oh, wow, he just said those three things. And yet, what we're going to see is the way that Scripture talks about these things is actually very beautiful, God-glorifying. So what we have to try and peel back is this understanding of sex being God, gross, or gift. And we're going to dig into that for a second. But to kind of drive home this, this point of being in a very confusing, very opinionated culture on sex and sexuality. Uh, I, I like all different types of music. But um, I want you to, to listen to the song. I, this is the song uh, Break Up With Him by Old Dominion. And uh, it was first and third at different times on the U.S. country airplay and hot country. And it came, back, it came out back in 2015. Um, but it went platinum. It's got about 170 million view, uh, hits on Spotify, which isn't that much nowadays. But I really like this song, and if it pops on the radio, I'm singing it. But I wanted to listen. I want us to listen to this one clip from from this song, "Break Up with Him" by Old Dominion. Go ahead, Kaylee. Please don't tell me I'm the only one that knows this song. Somebody else knows it, okay.
All right, anybody, anybody else know that song other than me? Okay, all right. So it's, it's really catchy, and I will, I will sing along if it pops on. But I want you to listen to this. Listen to the, the, this chorus. Tell him that it's over, then bring it on over. Stringing him along any longer, girl. It's just wasting precious time. Girl, you know you can't wait. Rip it off just like a Band-Aid. The way you look at me, girl, you can't pretend. I know you ain't in love with him. Break up with him. And it's really catchy, and it sounds good. And you think, like, oh, man, that's actually like kind of romantic and beautiful. It's actually, no, you're being driven by lust and emotion. But because it's played under a melody that's kind of catchy, we automatically start to ingrain some of these ideals into the back of our minds. And it was actually, it was several years ago, I was talking with this guy. He's one of the directors at this camp in, in uh, North Carolina. And he was talking about the little things we cheer for and we don't even realize. And uh, one of my favorite movies is Braveheart. I'm going to call spoiler alert right now. I will say it's like based on historical event. So if this is a spoiler for you, then study your history books more. It's not my fault. But in Braveheart, you have William Wallace who's trying to like basically get a group of crazy Scotsmen to rally behind him, so to speak, and find freedom for Scotland from England who's, you know, is, is just the king is, is a tyrant over Scotland. And towards the end of the film, he dies. And the, this one princess that William Wallace sleeps with, she like leans in and she's right before he dies and he's like, I want you to know your son, he's a wimp, he's going to die, and the baby I'm carrying isn't your son. So, like, your family line on the throne is done. And there's, like, the, I remember when I first saw this, and any time I've watched it since then, there's this moment of, like, yeah, man, you suck. Like, you're terrible. You're, you're the worst king, and you're t just all these atrocities that play out in this movie. But then this guy that I'm talking with in North Carolina, he's saying, what are the little things you're cheering for? You're cheering for adultery and murder, and you're excited that somebody's dying? And we get sucked into a storyline to the point that we're actually cheering for things that God would never be excited about. And it's kind of that same thing with, with a song. You think it sounds good, it's a good melody, and it's like, oh, it's kind of romantic. It's kind of like a Hallmark Christmas movie where you see the girl with the wrong guy, but then the right guy shows up and she helps, you know, he helps her buy a hotel she's always wanted. And that's like half a Hallmark Christmas movies. Uh, but give you, give you guys one more example. Uh, this song, If I Can't Have You by Shawn Mendes, over 900 million plays on Spotify. But listen to this clip from, from, from Shawn Mendes. That's Laurel's ringtone. Um, <laughs> you knew that way too well, Laurel. Uh, again, really catchy, but just listen to the lyrics. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. You listen to these lyrics, it's, it's kind of creepy, like obsessive and, and stalkerish kind of vibes. I can't write one song that's not about you. Can't drink without thinking about you. Is it too late to tell you that everything's mean, everything means nothing if I can't have you? It's like, wow, that's actually like idolatry, and you're kind of obsessed and creepy. Like, that's messed up. Now, it's not as bad as some other ones. Like, an older song, older song, and I'll be honest, I, I blanked on the artist, and I'm, please don't, don't beat me up for this. But the lyrics is literally, every breath you take, every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. 
if you've never listened to that song, I'm not going to sing it because I can't sing, but look up the, the music video for that song, and it's just, I'll be watching you. And literally, on key, he's like, it's profile for the whole time, every breath you take, every step, and then it's just, I'll be watching you. And it's super, it's, it's just like stalker anthem. But the way they write these songs, and it's actually, they play that song in this one movie called The Replacements, where like the main guy and the main girl, they finally kiss, and it's like, he thinks he's all cool. He like stops at the, the door of the bar, and the bar's empty, and the song starts playing in the background, and he turns, and he slowly walks up to her, and then right as the chorus hits, it's like, I'll be watching you, and he kisses her, and it's like, oh, yeah, and you're thinking like, oh, that's really weird and creepy and uncomfortable. Like, this is a guy who's like, hey, your new couches look good from the front yard. Like, that's the guy who write, wrote this song. But guys, the point I'm trying to make is we have all of these cultural influences that are bombarding us to have an even more skewed and just messed up view of sex and sexuality. So when you throw something on a good melody and you think like, oh yeah, idolatry is cool, being obsessive and stalkerish is totally fine because Shawn Mendes said it's fine. Or hey, it's totally fine for me to lust and be driven by my emotion because it sounds good with some country twang on it. And you look at, and that's just music. I mean, we, can't, we don't even necessarily have the time to get into media, but we have all these different influences, but let's try and boil this down and get this twisted concept of sex a little more straightened out and figure out what God uh, has planned for us here. But I want to start by looking at uh, Ezekiel 16. And I mentioned this passage to you guys um, a few weeks ago, and I actually used it as we were talking about a couple of different things. And, um, but in Ezekiel 16, my goodness. There we go. In Ezekiel 16, you have this really detailed imagery of the nation of Israel. And I want to read just a, a few verses out of here uh, for us. But God is painting this picture of intimacy and knowledge, and a beauty and relationship, and he ties it to sexuality. But this is Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 1. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Okay, so this is what God is telling Ezekiel to communicate to Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. So imagine this, this newborn umbilical cord still on, placenta still attached, not cleaned off, covered in blood, laying in dirt on the side of the road. And verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. 
The next few verses, it talks about how God comes by again. It says, I clothed you. I made you beautiful. I put fine linen on you. I put a, a, a ring on your finger. I put a, a nose ring on you. Basically, you became royalty. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. You keep on going down. Verse 23. And after all your wickedness, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your horn. Basically, what God is trying to communicate is say, listen, I raised you, I made you royalty, and you betrayed me. But the reason I wanted to look at Ezekiel 16 is because I want you to see the progression. Now, I, there's a lot of imagery going on in Ezekiel 16. And guys, I'll be honest with you, Ezekiel is a, is a, can be an extremely confusing book. But the analogies, the imagery is incredibly beautiful with the prophet Ezekiel. But as you kind of go through Ezekiel 16 in this story, he says, listen, I'm the one that raised you. I'm the one that adopted you. I'm the one that made you royalty. I made you mine. Then you were not faithful to me. And in that, you became prideful and you made yourself the center of attention. And I want you to see this correlation that God is trying to draw here. He's talking about Israel's faithfulness to him as God. But this correlation he's drawing, the analogy he's drawing, is he's saying, listen, as you incorporate sex and sexuality into your life, it becomes like a God. It becomes the thing that we pursue. And this is what's driving things. This is the, the point of view that's being driven by culture. Is that sex is God. This is what I pursue. But ultimately we have to understand is there's a deep connection to sexuality, intimacy, and idolatry. And when we start to process this and what this means for us in our relationships is it leaves us with a difficult question. Am I actually deciding to follow Jesus or are we simply theistic, moralistic hedonists? And what that means, theistic means what? You believe in a Godhead. Okay, so you believe in God, maybe specifically the Trinity. You understand morality, but because you're not necessarily following the teaching of Jesus, it's just a theistic moralism. Well, guess what? Then you get, you get this kind of a la carte buffet style. I get to pick and choose what things I personally feel are the right things for me to follow morally. But ultimately, the foundation, the driving force of why I live is hedonism, self-seeking pleasure. So if you have this driving force, all this influx of culture saying, yes, sexual empowerment, under, you know, you got to test drive the car before you buy it. This notion of, hey, to understand, hey, do you and your partner have chemistry before you get married? To try out all these different things. Because, guys, here's, here's the nature of sin. We're very shallow on our understanding of the nature of sin. The Hebrew word for sin, chata, means to miss or to fail. Judges, it talks about these, these uh, men from the tribe of Benjamin could sling a hair at a single stone and not kata, not miss. And that's the word that we translate as sin. 
But sin goes so much deeper than failing or missing the, the mark, the bullseye that is perfection, the standard God has set for us. It's actually the way in which we trick ourselves and, and redefine things in our mind to try and reason away what is sin and what isn't. So for example, for example, Paul squares up with me and he hits me in the face. Please tell me you don't fight like an Irishman from the 1950s. Um, but Paul squares up, he hits me across the face. Sin in and of itself is going to tell me, oh, self-defense, I can hit him back. Hence, Jesus says what? Turn the other cheek. Our natural tendency and inclination to try and rationalize and define things. So, oh, no, no, it's totally fine that, that we have sex. You know, we're planning on getting married. It's totally fine that, that we cross boundaries. We're engaged. No, no, this is, this is totally fine because I need to understand if we have chemistry in the bedroom, otherwise we're going to have a really unhealthy marriage. And that is all sin nature trying to tweak and twist and, and jack up our thought process. So what happens is we can either view sex as God. This is what I crave. This is what I desire. This is what I pursue. Because we're not actually walking with Jesus, but we're more so hedonists, but we have a vague understanding of morality. And yes, we like to think that there's a God out there, and hopefully I'm going to be good enough that, that I can go into heaven. But typically, when we look at the concept of sex specifically in the church, because God is how the world approaches things. And sometimes we allow that to creep into our mindset, that sex is God, this is what I'm going to pursue. But the way the church typically approaches things is that it's gross. And the reason is because we hone in on the Greek word porneia. And I, I want to pause on this for a second because the Greek word porneia that we translate as sexual immorality, it encompasses anything outside of the marriage bed. One man, one woman, and a covenant marriage. Anything outside of that is that Greek word porneia. Now, there are other words, some in Hebrew, some in Greek, Depending on the passage, there are other words that are used to communicate some different things like uh, adultery or fornication um, or orgies. Like there are different words in different passages that pop up. But I want you to look at this for a second. Hebrews 13, 14. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, in Hebrews 13, 4, that's actually a different Greek word that's translated as sexually immoral. That's actually the Greek word pornos. It's not the same root word, but it's specifically linked to fornicators and, and adultery. But here's what's interesting about this. Is that Greek word porneia, it actually means as well the worship of idols. So I want you to track with me here. The reason God refers to sexual immorality in that word, the reason that's the word that we have in this, is because of our tendency to make this our pursuit. And we make sex our idol. And we're driven by physical attraction. We're driven by how good they look, how fit they are. And guys, please, I hope and pray that you don't feel that I'm preaching to you because this is me. I allowed myself, I personally allowed myself to remain in an incredibly unhealthy relationship where I was manipulated and I was mistreated in some atrocious ways. But I liked some of the things she would do for me, so I allowed myself to stay in that relationship. So I made the sexuality of our relationship an idol and then therefore took just terrible treatment in the relationship itself. 
Okay, so God even explains this and uses the type of verbiage to say, this is going to try to consume you. Culture is going to try and motivate you to make this your sole pursuit. The church is then going to try and step in and address it, but the problem is, especially over the last 50 years, is you've got this hyper-purity culture, and sex becomes gross. And when we talk about sex and sexuality, we jump into verses like Genesis 1.28, which, yes, it is beautiful. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we jump into verses like this and say, look, marriage is great, sex is a gift, but, and we automatically jump to this context of sex that's constantly negative. So 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 7, but because of the... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is a will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Ephesians 5, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you. Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, Romans 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and in sensuality. So when we get into church settings, the world says God. We get into church settings and say, oh, it's gross, it's gross, it's gross, it's gross. In marriage, it's beautiful. And then you get those cliches. And I feel like this pops up more so in, in young adult ministries and in student ministries or like really edgy, like mainstream church, churches on Sunday morning where the pastor talks about his smoking hot wife. Like, and he makes those like, hey, sex is, is like, you gotta, you gotta be pure. You gotta be pure. You gotta be pure. But then you get married and sex is great. My wife's really hot. And, he keep, like, and they keep moving. And it's like, yes, but that doesn't help me at all. Whenever actually talking about the difficulties of this and understanding the fact that God, when he designed us and understood you come to sexual maturity at 12 or 13, and then in a 21st century American culture, we say, hey, shove that feeling down for like 10 to 25 years. Good luck. And then the church, after they, we ask young people to do that, then we go, oh my gosh, why is it 90% of our men and 60% of our women are struggling with pornography? I'm like, well, what did you expect? Now, yes, God does call us to sexual purity. He calls us to purity in every area of our life. And what we need to understand in this concept of pornea, I want to back up for a second is an understanding that this, is, this encompasses anything out of one man, one woman, and covenant marriage. So living in a homosexual lifestyle, pornea. Let me clarify this. Struggling with same-sex attraction, not a sin. Actively pursuing a homosexual lifestyle, pornea, outside of one man, one woman, and covenant marriage. Lust, pornea. Porn, pornea, masturbation, pornea, anything outside of one man, one woman in a covenant marriage encompasses that concept 
of sexual immorality. It was probably the most uncomfortable conversation I've ever had with like an older gentleman. And it wasn't just me, thank God, literally. But this camp that I got saved at, and a couple years later, I started working there every summer. And every year during our staff training, we would have, you know, we'd break up the guy staff and the girl staff. And the male director of this camp, who was probably like in his late 60s, early 70s at the time. Um, and I love him to death, respect the heck out of him, but he did not age well. So he looked even older. And he had this little saying, and he would, it was really weird because he would sit down with all the male staffers. And, uh, but he had this little saying, he says, guys, it's, you know, you can't help it if a woman walks by in a bikini, what are you going to do? And he says, you can let the bird land, but you can't let it make a nest. And when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable, I don't really process what you're saying. Uh, but then as I started to, this, this one book, it's a really beautiful resource, beautiful tool, uh, but it's every young man's battle, every man's battle, there's every young woman's battle, every woman's battle, there's basically these books focused on trying to find uh, sexual purity, pursuing sexual purity. But this book conveyed it like this, the first look isn't on you, the second one is. So you have no control over whether or not you are attracted to somebody that walks into your field of vision, but it is entirely on you whether or not you decide to keep looking or to look back. You can't control if a bird lands on your head, but you can control whether or not you swat it away. You can't control if a thought, an image, something comes to your mind, but what do you do? You beat your flesh into submission. You make it obedient to Christ. Okay? So, we're going to move on. We've got these two competing perspectives. It's either God or it's gross. The world is constantly pushing God. The church, for the most part, constantly pushing its gross. Either way, you end up with a very twisted, unhealthy view of sex and sexuality that could potentially damage your future marriage. But ultimately, where we need to land is the fact that sex is a beautiful gift from God. But what does that actually look like? And I, I want us to talk about that for a second is that we have this hostile culture towards sex from both sides of the spectrum, and it creates this disconnect in understanding that sex was God's idea. Him creating man, him creating woman, with the anatomy that they had, he leaves them in the garden together, says be fruitful and multiply, enjoy one another, and then he goes, he comes back in the cool of the day, and ah, what are you doing? I did not expect you to figure this out that way. When I created these two puzzle pieces, I didn't think that's how they were going to fit. He wasn't surprised by this. He intended it. And he said that it was beautiful, that it was good. And guys, we need to understand something. God cannot and is not surprised by what sex can be, the beauty of it within his intended design. But sadly, he's also not surprised by what it has become, by the manipulation and perversion of it. Whether it's viewing it as God becoming an idol and it becoming your sole pursuit or the fact that it's gross and it makes you uncomfortable. And God does, he gives us all the tools that we need. He tries to set us up for success in this regard. And he has an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this sole concept. And Song of Songs or Song of Solomon or Canticle of Canticles, which simply means hymn of hymns, but frankly, I feel like calling a book Canticle of Canticles when it has to deal with sex, you're like, wait, is that a sexual word I've never heard before? Like, what's a canticle? That sounds very inappropriate to say in church. It simply just means him. 
But Song of Songs is a book of poetry around human sexuality. And it is beautiful. But it's not exactly one that we necessarily jump to and think like, hey, let's do an exegetical study of Song of Solomon. Like that's not where our mind initially goes. But I want to I look at a couple of these. Incredibly beautiful book of the Bible. Because God views sex as beautiful. But Song of Songs, starting, uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Actually, you know what? I'm going to start at verse 14. It says, O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. This poetic, very beautiful verse. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Listen to this, verse 16, 17. It says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breeze and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag or, a young stag or cleft mountains. And there is this beautiful poetry within Song of Solomon of an intimacy with your spouse. Now, the reason we don't jump into Song of Solomon and study it and look at it is because, yeah, there are some passages that we read here and go like, oh, man, this is super weird. Like, I can only imagine like a 90-year-old, like my great aunt or my great grandmother reading this passage and it just makes you uncomfortable. But Song of Solomon chapter 7, starting in verse 6, says how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. Don't use that as a pickup line, guys. Would not go over well at all. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Okay, I see where you're going. Again, it's like, man, why is this so strange? Oh, may your breasts be like its clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early in the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grapes blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance. And beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. And you, again, you have this beautiful poetry saying, listen, I want to give you my best. I want to give you my first fruits. But we don't necessarily ever get into conversation about sex in this way. And I get it, there's this, there's this weird kind of tightrope act you have to, to walk. Because if you're sitting down, you're having a conversation with somebody, and you start talking about your favorite restaurants, you start talking about your favorite dishes, and you start like specifically describing like, oh man, I love a good eight ounce porterhouse, butter, garlic, and some of the guys are like closing their eyes like, yes. <laughs> it makes you hungry. You read too much of Song of Songs, it might make you a little thirsty, all right? 
there is a, a tendency of like, I need to be careful and how much I recognize the beauty of this. I understand that. But we've become so afraid to handle the concept of sex that we have basically told the world, we've told these basically harmful perspectives of it being God, it being gross, you know, one of these two perspectives. We've basically said, listen, I can't really wrap my mind around, I can't really make myself comfortable with the fact that sex is a gift and it should be openly communicated and we can pursue this in a holy and beautiful and God-glorifying way. I can't necessarily like come to terms with that, so I'm just going to land in one of those other two camps. And it's either going to become an idol that I constantly pursue, but I'm also constantly ashamed of. Or it's going to become something so grotesque to me that by the time I'm in an intimate relationship with my spouse, that it's going to create a rift in us because we can only have sex once a month or a couple times a year. And I'll be honest with you guys, this isn't something I was planning on talking about. I can't remember the exact details, but there was a study done several years ago, and I'll have to double check it. But there was a study done several years ago, and it was, I can't remember exactly what denomination of churches, but there was a study done amongst pastors, and the majority of pastors were having sex less than five times a year. Because there's this fumbling and just lack of understanding of what sex is, the fact that it is a beautiful gift from God, and how do I appropriately handle that? Now, within all of that, we have to just make a decision on whether or not we're going to understand that this gift isn't going to be worth the wait. If I can rationalize, hey, this isn't going to be my God, this is not going to be something that is gross to me, I can actually say sex, I can say whore because it's in the Bible, I can say breasts because it's in the Bible... I can say those words and not cringe. I don't like gulp before I have to say it. Uncomfortable conversation. But you think about when you're a kid, and my brother and I were so guilty of this. Every, like we would wait till like midnight, one a.m. And what we do? We went downstairs and we tried to find the Christmas presents. And well, actually, we were trying to find the Christmas present before Christmas. But by the time it was Christmas Eve, we would go downstairs and we would try and figure out what we got. Or sometimes my dad, like the the, the biggest gift or the most expensive gift he would save for last and he'd hide in another room so we'd be peeking around and like any creak of the house is just like, you know. And we just had no patience to fully enjoy what it was that we were about to receive. Because the language of Scripture, I want you to understand this, the language of Scripture communicates this. When you look at the Old Testament, and it says that Adam knew Eve, and that word knew, they had sex, is used again and again. It's the Hebrew word yada, and it is translated as to know, but it carries this weight of intimacy. It means to know physically, to know spiritually, to know mentally, to know emotionally, that you are creating such a deep connection with this person that should only be shared within a covenant. And that is an incredibly beautiful and freeing element to the marriage relationship. Did God intend sex for pleasure? Yes. Did he intend sex for reproduction? Yes. 
But at its core, he designed and created an intended sex for intimacy between husband and wife. And there are some aspects to my relationship with Lexi. There are some firsts that I have been able to give her. And there have been firsts that I was not able to give her. And on our wedding day, as she was walking down the aisle to me, think about Ephesians, it says that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church to sanctify her, present her spotless without wrinkle. And as she's walking toward me, I, I cried a little bit, I'm not going to lie. Um, and my wife, she jokes to this day, she said, if you didn't cry, I would have stopped, turned around, and, and like I would have told you, do it again. And she would have gone back and said, like, we're doing this again, start over. And the girls are like, preach, yes. And guys, you think you're not going to, and it just, it's, you know when someone walks up behind you and they hit you in the back of the knees, you have no control, you just do this? Like, that's, that, that's the feeling of crying on your wedding day. You're like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. No, I'm not. <laughs> but the night before, the night before our wedding, and I'm not saying this to, like, kind of doom and gloom or, or anything like that. But the week leading up to and the night before, there was definitely some moments of, dang it, I can't, I can't give her this. I gave that to somebody else first. And that was, that was frustrating and difficult. Especially in, in some of those moments where I knew that I was getting her first, but she wasn't getting mine. And this concept of first, like the timing's really interesting. This past Sunday, we celebrated our youngest son's first birthday. And my wife and I, as far as our plan, we'll see if it's God's plan, I don't know. But our plan is we're not planning on having any more kids. So my wife's really been wrestling with this. Okay, we, you know, we have a lot of firsts that are never, like they're done. She sent me this clip on Instagram. She said, your, things with your last kid are always so difficult because a lot of the firsts are also the lasts. So the first, first step is the last first step. The first, first word is the last first word. But at the same time, there's, there's, as difficult as that is, knowing that it's the last, I'm actually more focused on what my next first is with our kids. Because I know those ones are done, so now my mind is more so focused here. the elements of my wife and I's relationship where we were able to share the last created this, this beautiful depth of there is no past. So when it says, when, when God says two shall become one flesh, like we have ceased to exist in these capacities. We are now united as one person. So these are now first and these are now last for us as we move forward in our relationship. And those firsts and lasts, by God's design, are 100%, a million percent worth the wait. Now within that, I said that, within, I said that during worship before we even started. There's a beauty and abundance of, of forgiveness, and I want to read this passage in Psalm 51. 
and know that, you know, there was this kind of movement in the 80s and 90s of like, you could spiritually renew your virginity. That's not what I'm talking about. Because whatever your sexual history is, whatever your past is, that is a part of your story now. And understanding what that means for you as you become united, as you become one flesh with your spouse in the future, if that's what God has for you. But this is Nathan the prophet. He comes, he rebukes David for Bathsheba. And listen to this prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin ever before me. Now, just in the, I want to pause. Just in those three verses, you've got transgression, iniquity, sin. All of them have different connotations. Sin simply meaning to miss the mark. Iniquity and transgression come down to breaking of covenant and rebellion. So he's saying, listen, I've rebelled against your plan. I violated covenant with you and with my wife, with her husband. Like, I've broken covenants and I've missed the mark. I've sinned. He's, he's hammering all three of these. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Draw out the impurities from me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let, my, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a, with a willing spirit. This is his prayer. This is his, his praise of repentance. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I have made a God of this. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Beauty flows out of scripture, not only in the concept of the gift of sex, but also in the forgiveness of sexual sin and healing from sexual trauma. So guys, listen, I know we weren't able to come up with all the answers tonight, but hopefully we got some of these elements of sex and sexuality that are a little twisted, a little bent out of shape. We got them a little straightened out. But I hope that you are able to go before the Lord in repentance. Have that joy of your salvation restored if your story and David's story line up a little bit. And if it doesn't, that you would remain steadfast in seeing that this gift of God is worth the wait. So let's pray together. Father, I praise you. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you lovingly correct us as we seek to understand the beauty of sex and sexuality. 
how wonderful your design of the marriage covenant that we can experience pleasure with our spouse. That it's okay to discuss anatomy. It's okay to discuss things you have created and called good. And Father, when we avoid having those conversations, even when it's sometimes uncomfortable and difficult to have, it actually directs us more to these false views of what healthy sex and sexuality is. So God, I ask that you would continue to reveal to us your design in all of this, but you would give us an abundance of of endurance and steadfastness as we continue to pursue purity. And for those of us that need to come to you and be purged with hyssop, that you would do that work in us. And we thank you that you are faithful to answer that call. We praise you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message, and for more information on the Young Adult Ministry, follow us on Instagram, or you can email us at youngadults at cornerstonelive.net.